0: Hey folks, coming in hot with a little ad uh, for myself in my upcoming book. If you like this podcast, you are definitely going to like the book I wrote based on it. Unruly Figures, 20 Tales of Rebels, Rule Breakers, and Revolutionaries covers several people that I've never covered on the podcast. From queens of piracy in the Mediterranean to rebellious artists in New York to Aboriginal resistance leaders in Tasmania, this book is full of rebellious folks you may have never heard of. It comes out wherever books are sold on March 5th. Pre-order it now. Link is in the show notes. Hey everyone, welcome to Unruly Figures, the podcast that celebrates history's greatest rule breakers. I'm your host, Valerie Clark, and today I'm going to be covering one of the United States' great queer icons, Storm de Laville. De Lavier is remembered as the woman who threw the first punch at Stonewall. She was also a jazz singer, a drag king, a cabaret performer, and she eventually caught the eye of legendary photographer Diane Arbus. Her story is a fun one, and I kind of can't believe that I had never heard of Delavier until I started researching Pride for an article back in May. Oh, but a quick warning. This story does touch on a little homophobia and violence. It's when I talk about Stonewall, so if that makes you uncomfortable, just skip ahead a few seconds. Before we get into her story, for a full transcript of today's episode, head over to unrulyfigures.substack.com. That's U-N-R-U-L-Y-F-I-G-U-R-E-S dot S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K dot com. In addition to the full transcript, you can also get ad-free episodes, a bibliography of my research, photos of everyone I'm covering, discussion threads, and so much more. So check it out. All right, let's hop back in time. Storm DeLavier was born in New Orleans, Louisiana, in 1920. She apparently never knew her exact date of birth, but she always celebrated her birthday on December 24th. Her father was white and her mother was black, which was a big deal in Louisiana where interracial relationships were frowned upon and interracial marriage was illegal. Her mother was actually a servant in her father's household, which is troubling a little bit right off the bat, right, due to power dynamics and consent issues. However, we know her father acknowledged her and took care of her. And at least one article mentions that the couple eventually married and moved to California, though I'm, I only saw that in one place. According to another documentary, it was actually her grandfather who did the bulk of the parenting, though. According to the website Them, Storm was never issued a birth certificate because of her parents' different races. This is supposed to explain why she didn't know her exact birthday. Of course, we've talked a little bit in the past about people's own myth-making and how sometimes stories or jokes or incomplete explanations end up passing into the historical record as fact. And I'm fairly sure that this idea that Storm wasn't issued a birth certificate because her parents were different races is, at best, incomplete. First of all, birth certificates, even in 1920, weren't as common and well-regulated as they are today. In the book The Birth Certificate in American History, author Susan J. Pearson talks about early 20th century campaigns for mandatory birth certificates, pushed forward in large part by progressives who needed birth certificates to exist across the board so they could prove children's ages so that they could then enact research and policies around infant mortality, child labor laws, education reform, etc., As late as 1917, organizers of quote-unquote baby weeks in states like Louisiana aggressively pushed registration as part of child welfare. During one of these baby weeks in Louisiana, a parade that was part of the festivities had a banner in it that said, quote, Louisiana babies first plea, doctor, I want a record for me. Second of all, in 1920, Jim Crow was still the law of the land, and governments were very interested in tracking people's race. Yes, interracial marriage was illegal, but the only way governments could prove that a marriage was interracial is if both members had birth certificates documenting their race. And Pearson's book gets into some really interesting stories around people who presented as white but were race really categorized as black on their birth certificates and how that led to marriages being annulled. So if Storm's parents were married, the marriage might have been annulled if discovered when Storm was born, but that wouldn't have been a good enough reason for other people involved to not document Storm's birth and especially not document that one of her parents was black. On the other hand, it's possible she wasn't issued a birth certificate because someone just forgot to do it. I have my doubts about the reason people claim why she wasn't issued a birth certificate, but not having one at that time was common enough. On the other hand, it seems unlikely to me that this biracial child born in a major city in 1920 wouldn't have a birth certificate at all, specifically because the government would have wanted to track her and count her as part of the black population and use this certificate as proof to deny her equitable housing and education for her whole life. It's not great, don't get me wrong, it's a gross reason, but that's the reality that we're working with in the South in 1920. My best guess is that DeLavier probably did have a birth certificate and was probably just misplaced at some point. The other option is that perhaps her mother decided not to give birth in a hospital because of fears around kind of the illegality of her relationship with Storm's father. But I am I mean, this is wild speculation at this point. So anyway, I know that was a long tangent. I just wanted to kind of point it out because I saw that repeated in a lot of places and it, it just kind of, I don't know, twigged my historian spidey senses. I, was, I wasn't sure about it. Anyway, back to the story. As a child, DeLavier was bullied and even beaten by other local kids for being biracial. One incident left her with a permanent leg brace. Another was intense scarring. Another left her with intense scarring from being hung on a fence. Eventually, her father paid to send her to a private school further north to protect her. Nevertheless, her grandfather once told her that, quote, "...if I didn't stop running, I'd be running for the rest of my life. And when I was 15, I stopped running, and I haven't run a day since." End quote. We don't know when exactly, but she joined the Ringling Brothers Circus as a team. She traveled with the circus and rode jumping horses' side saddle, which sounds very difficult to me. In 1938, at the age of 18, Storm moved to Chicago, citing concerns that she'd be killed for being both biracial and a lesbian in the South. There, she began singing with jazz bands and clubs across the city. There's also some indication that she worked as a bodyguard to some mobsters in Chicago, creating a link that would continue for a while. In the early 1950s, she visited Miami and met Danny Brown and Doc Brenner of the venue Danny's Jewel Box. They wanted to put on a show and and asked her to help. She agreed to stay and help for six months, but ended up staying for nearly 14 years. She became the MC of the Jewel Box Review, a touring drag cabaret that traveled all over the U.S. in the 1950s and 60s. They were known for, I mean, almost a game that they would play with audiences. They said that the troupe was 25 men and a woman, and audiences would kind of spend the show watching the 25 drag queens on stage, trying to guess which one was the woman. And at the end, while singing a surprise with a song, the impeccably suited MC would reveal her true identity as Storm, delighting audiences. Back then, she was called a male impersonator. Today, we'd call her a drag king. It was more rare to be a drag king than a drag queen even then. And so even though some audiences were used to drag queens, this reveal was always very surprising to folks. Before she got started doing drag, friends of hers asked if she was sure she should do this, if if performing in drag wouldn't ruin her reputation. In the documentary, she remembered the masking, quote, Didn't I already have enough problems being black? Her response is killer. She said, well, I didn't have any problem with it. Everybody else did, end quote. Notably, the Jewel Box Review was the first racially integrated show of its kind. Audiences were very diverse to reflect the show. Black and white, queer and straight patrons all intermingled at Jewel Box Review's shows, including families. The show was family friendly and supposedly very fun. She performed with the show from 1955 to 1969. According to the New York Public Library archives, the review was a favorite on the black theater circuit and regularly played at the Apollo Theater in Harlem, New York. In a documentary, Storm, The Lady of the Jewel Box, DeLavier said of this role, quote, "'It was very easy. "'All I had to do was just be me "'and let people use their imaginations. "'It never changed me. "'I was still a woman.'" Even when not on stage, DeLavier tended to dress in pretty masculine attire, especially in tight pants and big loose jackets. By her own account, though, DeLavier tried to do, quote, the right thing, wear men's clothes on stage and wear women's clothes on the street. I got picked up twice for being a drag queen. Of course, people across history have dressed in clothes not traditionally made for their bodies. However, DeLavier's combined fashion sense and role as the famous performer of the Jewelbox Review made her a groundbreaking icon of fashion androgyny. According to GQ, her, her, quote, publicity photographs show a dandyish approach to zoot suits and black tie. Gender fluid dressing has become a major force in fashion over the past few seasons, but Deleuze's approach to style is an early striking instance of it, End quote. The Jewel Box review made Delavier so famous she began hanging around with really famous people like Billie Holiday. She also caught the attention of famous fine art portrait photographer Diane Arbus around 1961. She sat for a portrait on a bench in a park, wearing a lovely tailored suit with black boots. In one hand, she holds a cigarette, and she looks into the camera with something like bemusement. Many of Arbus's photos capture like a certain grittiness, but this one is all elegance. Her daughter, Amy Arbus, reviewed the photo in 2016 and said that DeLavier, quote, looks every bit as intrigued about the photographer as the other way around. It is a kind, gentle, completely unadorned investigation of an open, honest soul who seems a bit bemused, end quote. I've included the photo and several others in the transcript on Substack. So today, I wanna tell you about GoFundBean. This is a nonprofit that supports, uplifts, and defends hourly coffee professionals. Since March of 2020, they've given over $50,000 to people put out of work by COVID. They've covered people's lost wages when the power grid in Texas failed early in 2021. They've given funding to help people get mental health care, which is infamously expensive in the United States. They've even established the first formal mentoring program in the specialty coffee industry. I actually worked as a barista and a barista trainer for nine years. When I did, I always lived like right on the knife's edge of financial ruin. A flat tire or a sudden illness that kept me from work often would mean I would only be eating plain rice for a week or two. There was no safety net within the industry, and I lived in a state with no social safety net either. GoFundMe has started to become that safety net. Right now, GoFundBean is asking people to become monthly supporters so they can continue their important work of advocating for coffee professionals. If you love a barista or you just drink a latte every once in a while, please consider donating a couple dollars a month. Head over to GoFundBean.org, that's GoFundBean.org, and support the coffee professionals that have been keeping you caffeinated. Sometime before the summer of 1969, then 48 years old, LaVier left the Jewel Box Review to move to New York. She quickly befriended the queer community and was at the Stonewall Inn on June 28th, the night that the police raided. A little background on Stonewall Inn is in order, I think. It sat at 53 Christopher Street in Greenwich Village. Like many of the gay bars and clubs in New York City, it was owned by the mafia, the Genovese crime family to be exact. They had registered it as a private club, meaning guests had to be quote-unquote members and sign like a piece of paper as they came in um, and also supposedly bring their own alcohol, though often the mafia provided bootlegged liquor that could be purchased. The family would bribe the police to ignore the activities at the establishments they owned across the city. Now, before you think the mafia was doing this as some sort of like allyship and crusade against homophobia, they were not. Because the bar was not subject to oversight by local government, It didn't have running water behind the bar. The toilets didn't really work. There wasn't a fire exit. You know, it was just sort of like a nightmare of regulation violations. Also, the mafia tended to use that sign-in sheet that I mentioned to blackmail wealthier or famous patrons who were trying to keep their sexuality a secret. But for the LGBT community, having a space where they could congregate away from police interference was a half step up from the harassment they had to endure in public spaces in the 1960s. And so, in short order, Stonewall Inn became a Greenwich institution. According to History.com, quote, it was large and relatively cheap to enter. It welcomed drag queens who received a bitter reception at other gay bars and clubs. It was a nightly home for many runaways and homeless gay youths who panhandled or shoplifted to afford the entry fee. And it was one of the few, if not the only, gay bar left that allowed dancing. End quote. At the time, for context, dancing um, dancing with someone of the same sex was illegal in New York and in many places. Um, but Stonewall uh, had two dance floors and, and still so allowed dancing, which was a really big draw for people. However, raids were, quote, a fact of life, um, I guess because even the most corrupt cops had to at least look like they were trying. Um, the ones accepting bribes would usually tip off the mafia in advance so they, they could be sure to hide any illegal activities and present sort of an acceptable face for the cops arriving. It's worth noting, in fact, that the inn had just been raided a few days before with advanced warning that time. But in the early hours of June 28th, 1968, the police came again. This time there had been no warning. They found bootlegged alcohol and people dressed in clothes that violated New York's gender-appropriate clothing statute. The police arrested a dozen people and subjected the people they thought were cross-dressing to an invasive inspection of their genitals to see if their clothing matched their sex. The patrons, fed up by the constant harassment from police, stuck around instead of dispersing that night, watching the event unfold. It is slightly debated, but many say that DeLavier was the, quote, cross-dressing lesbian, end quote, who threw the first punch. Apparently, a police officer, mistaking her for a man in her masculine attire, told her to, quote, move along, end quote. Another version of the story goes that DeLavier was being roughly led out of the inn by a police officer already wearing handcuffs. She was fighting back, almost escaping on several occasions. She took on four officers at once as they tried to manhandle her into a waiting police wagon. At some point, an officer hit her over the head with a baton and even with blood running down her face, she continued to fight back. At this point, she looked out at the crowd that had gathered on the sidewalk and screamed at them, why don't you do something? When an officer picked her up and all but threw her into the wagon, the crowd went, quote, berserk. And that was the beginning of the several days of fighting. As a side note, some people say that Stonewall, the like the fighting around Stonewall lasted for three days, some people say five, yet others say six days. How long you say the unrest went on sort of depends on what you're terming as unrest. You know, so you'll see if you go on and do more reading on your own, you'll see all of those those lengths of time mentioned. This is what happened in the days that followed, according to the Rainbow Times. Quote, hundreds of queer and trans people fought the police with their fists and thrown objects. They pulled up a parking meter and used it to barricade police inside the bar, started fires, and damaged cars and property as crowds of 500 to 1,000 people rioted in the surrounding streets. End quote. This was not the first protest for the rights of LGBTQ people in the United States. That's definitely worth noting. But several things made it different. The scope, with hundreds of people participating for days on end, for one, the media presence was another coverage of Stonewall became, began that same morning. It, it didn't go unnoticed, and importantly, I think Stonewall also came at the tail end of a decade of protesting. Almost every summer in the 1960s, major American cities experienced some unrest. Whether it was the Watts Rebellion in Los Angeles in 1965, the Detroit riots in 1967, the unrest after like the in the unrest across the U.S. after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in 1968. I mean, by 1969, people had learned that peaceful protest wasn't as effective as civil disobedience, and so they might have seen Stonewall for what it was almost as soon as it started, a flashpoint, the beginning of a major shift. DeLavigne's presence at Stonewall and her reputation for throwing the first punch set her on the path to becoming an LGBTQ icon. It's worth noting that she herself pushed back against calling Stonewall a riot. She said, quote, it was a rebellion. It was an uprising. It was a civil rights disobedience. It wasn't no damn riot. She was known to say this on several occasions. She expanded on it, in fact, in Charles Kaiser's 1997 book, The Gay Metropolis. There she said, quote, Stonewall was just the flip side of the black revolt when Rosa Parks took a stand. Finally, the kids down there took a stand. But it was peaceful. I mean, they said it was a riot. It was more like civil disobedience. Noses got broken, there were bruises and banged up knuckles and things like that, but no one was seriously injured. The police got the shock of their lives when those queens came out of that bar and pulled off their wigs and went after them. I knew sooner or later people were going to get the same attitude that I had. They had just pushed once too often. End quote. After Stonewall, Delavier became a member of the Stonewall Veterans Association, where she held various roles as the chief of security, ambassador, and for a couple of years, vice president. She became a regular at the Pride parade starting in 1970, though I'm not sure if she had anything to do with planning it. However, she often led the parade in, quote, the historic 1969 Cadillac convertible Stonewall car, which she called Storm's Baby. In New York, DeLavigne lived at the famous Hotel Chelsea, where she's, quote, thrived on the atmosphere created by many writers, musicians, artists, and actors. If you've heard the name Hotel Chelsea, by the way, it's probably because poet Allen Ginsberg lived there, or because Arthur C. Clarke wrote 2001 A Space Odyssey there, or because it's where Nancy of Sid and Nancy was found murdered. Storm would live there for decades until she was moved into a nursing home in her 80s. Shortly after Stonewall, maybe as early as like late 1969, de long longtime girlfriend Diana passed away. Unfortunately, all the historical record seems to have preserved about Diana was that she was a dancer and that she and de Lavier had been together for 25 years. De Lavier also apparently carried a photo of Diana in her wallet for the rest of her life and never really dated anybody else. It seems like they probably got together as early as 1944 when de Lavier was 24 years old and still living in Chicago. I wish that we knew more about her, but I couldn't find much of anything, not even a last name. After the loss of Diana, DeLavie left entertainment entirely. She began working as a bodyguard for rich families during the day and working as a bouncer at night. She started at Elaine Romagnoli's famous cubbyhole and stayed there through its acquisition and changeover to Henrietta Hudson. And I'm very sorry if I pronounced Elaine's last name incorrectly. She remained on staff until 2005, when she was 85 years old. She took this role very seriously, as it gave her a chance to watch over the young LGBT community in New York. DeLavie was also known for kind of meeting out vigilante justice at night. She carried a straight-edge razor in her sock and had a gun permit, so she would, quote, roam the West Village, armed and keeping an eye out for what she called ugliness, any form of intolerance, bullying, or abuse of her baby girls. She was seen as a guardian of all queer people, but especially lesbians in the city. Her longtime friend, Lisa Canestracki, told the New York Times she literally walked the streets of downtown Manhattan like a gay superhero. She was not to be messed with by any stretch of this imagination. I think this risks painting like a really aggressive picture of her. So just quickly, I want to quote an obituary of DeLaviers printed in the Washington Post. The author, Jonathan Capehart, wrote, quote, To see DeLaviers stride the streets of the village, as I did in the 1990s, was to see what you thought was a tough dude confidently making his way through the world. To talk to her was to discover a gentle spirit steeled by life's experiences. End quote. In addition to all this, LaVie would also work with women and children who'd survived domestic violence. She organized and performed in benefits for them. When asked why she did this, she replied, quote, Somebody has to care. People say, Why do you still do that? I said, It's very simple. If people didn't care about me when I was growing up, with my mother being black, raised in the South, I wouldn't be here. Though she remained very active until she was 85 years old, sometime after this, Lavie began suffering from dementia and the compounding effects of old age. According to the New York Times, in 2009, a judge appointed the Jewish Association for Services for the Aged as as her legal guardian, though I'm not completely clear on why. In March of 2010, she was hospitalized after she was found disoriented and dehydrated at the Chelsea Hotel. The next month, she moved full-time into a nursing home in Brooklyn. As we saw in part two of the Rose Parks episode and in the Manuela Sainz episode, the community her advocacy had benefited did not rise to the occasion to help De Lavier when she needed them. Lisa Canastracchi, the longtime friend of De Lavier and owner of the lesbian bar Henrietta Hudson, where Delavier had worked, expressed disappointment about this like really succinctly. Quote, The young gays and lesbians today have never heard of her, and most of our activists are young. They're in their 20s and early 30s. The community that's familiar with her is dwindling. She added, quote, "I feel like the gay community could have really rallied, but they didn't." End quote. In a 2001 documentary short, De Lavier said, quote, "I'm a human being that survived. I helped other people survive. I think that's kind of a beautiful summation of her life." On May 24, 2014, Storm DeLavier passed away from a heart attack. She was 93 years old. A funeral was held a few days later at the Greenwich Village Funeral Home. In 2019, Delavier was one of 50 inaugural heroes inducted into the National LGBTQ Wall of Honor inside the Stonewall National Monument. It is the first U.S. national monument dedicated to LGBTQ rights in history. Well, that's the story of Storm Delavier. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Unruly Figures. If you follow me on Twitter or Substack, you know this episode is a little late after I had to take a trip without my microphone for a family emergency. So thank you for all your patience regarding that. I really appreciate it. And if you aren't following along on Twitter or Substack yet, why not? We have a good time. Our handle is Unruly Figures. Come hang out. Thank you to everyone who has liked and subscribed to Unruly Figures. I'm told that this is where credits go, but Unruly Figures is researched, written, recorded, edited, and produced by me. All by myself. So if you are into supporting independent artists, please share this with at least one person you know. If you're feeling really generous, rate this show and leave a review for Unruly Figures on Apple Podcasts. It really does help other people find this work. If you want to subscribe, you can do that wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Unruly Figures. Come hang out. If you want to see photos related to today's episode, come find this episode's transcript on Substack. It'll be full of photos. While there, you can also subscribe for ad-free episodes and behind-the-scenes content. That's all going to be at unrulyfigures.substack.com. That's u n r u l y f i g u r e s.substack.com. Until next time, stay unruly.